Okay, we are in a series uh, on the parables of Jesus. And as we came out of Galatians, Galatians, Galatians 6, um, we were reminded that we reap what we sow. And so we want to sow spiritual health. We want to sow speeds of, seeds of spiritual health into our lives and believe that they're going to bear fruit. How do we do that? By following the way of Jesus. And how do we follow the way of Jesus? We open our scripture and we study Jesus. We study his life. We study his words. We study his teachings. And we study the parables that he taught because a ton of what Jesus taught and how Jesus taught was in telling stories. And so what we've been doing, what we will continue to be doing is by standing on those promises in Galatians that we reap what we sow and that we are going to sow by following the way of Jesus. We're going to look into his life and we're going to discover what that looks like to follow the way of Jesus. But the parables can be a little bit confusing. As Jesus said, all these things, Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. And without a parable, he did not speak to them that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Matthew 13, 34 and 35. And this is our foundational verse to talk about parables because if we have that reality that the parables are revealing a kingdom reality that we only can experience through and by knowing Jesus, that helps us have a perspective when we're reading these stories that we're not reading them for really neat, like, oh, moral lessons. We're actually reading them to see into a different, an entirely different way of doing life and a king and a kingdom that has come. And so the reason that Jesus spoke in parables we believe the reason that Jesus spoke in parables is because what he was doing was so different, so explosive, and so dangerous that the only way he could talk about it oftentimes was to use stories. He was sharing things that were so controversial. He was talking in a kingdom reality, in a coming king that would have gotten him killed, but he also understood the timing dynamic. And so there was a place where he would say, it's not, it's not yet time for me to be fully revealed. And so in that place, he would, he would be cautious in his miracle working. He would be cautious in his preaching and teaching. And he would be cautious in some of the things that he would say, was saying. So he would share these things in parables that to the listener at the time would make some sense. But to us, it makes deep We can see it in a deep reality, a deep kingdom reality, because we get to look through that what Jesus has accomplished, the cross and the resurrection. And so it helps us to understand these parables from a kingdom mindset. So this morning, I want to talk about the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. If you guys will turn to Matthew 18, we're actually going to start in verse 21. We're going to go through verse 35. So Jesus told this parable in response to a question that was asked of him. Peter asked him a question in verse 21. Peter came to Jesus and he asked Jesus, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. So culturally, within Jewish culture, it was, it was very celebrated in the religious thinking of that day to be able to forgive someone three times. So if you forgave someone three times, you were really at the top of your game. You were an incredible person, a great character. Look at you forgiving someone three times. And so Peter asked this question, and he's like... I'm going to, you know, it's kind of like the question we talked about last week where he goes, who is my, who's my neighbor? Like, uh, how many times should I forgive? And he, and, and, he, and he goes for like a high number, seven times? Jesus, should I forgive them seven times? Eh? If three is a lot, I'm going for seven. Now I understand the numerology. Some of you study scripture, you're like, oh, it's the number of completion. And I get that. But he's going for, a, the point is he's going for a larger number than what would have been expected. And Jesus answered, I, I, I tell you, 
Not seven times, but 77 times. Seven times seven. So the reality of what Jesus was saying was just an ongoing amount of forgiveness. That there is not an end to the amount of times that you should forgive in my kingdom and in the reality of what I'm trying to display to you. And that would have been such a, a radical statement. And I, I mean, hopefully it's still a radical statement to us today. Like that's an incredible ask from Jesus. If somebody is, has wronged us, has, 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 we've been hurt by them, to say, I'll forgive you three times. But after that, no more, right? But maybe seven, maybe seven. And Jesus is saying, if you carry my reality, if you carry my heart, you will continue to be able to operate in this place of forgiveness. And so he goes on to say, the king, and as an illustration of this answer that he gave to them, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. 10,000 bags of gold. That's the modern translation of the amount. Um, not that they didn't have gold back then. That's just, anyway. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. So the beauty of this part, oh, no, I'm not going to dive into it. Let's keep reading it. But... When that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and he began to choke him. And he said, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, I will pay it back. Same exact request that he gave to the king, this servant gave to his fellow servant. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. Which, let me check, was 10,000 bags of gold. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So let's break this parable down a little bit. So Jesus begins this parable by comparing the kingdom of heaven to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servant. He didn't say that God is like this or the heavenly father is like this. He said the kingdom is like this. And as you heard in this story, one of the servant owed him 10,000 bags of gold. And so the reason that number is so high, which sounds a little bit obnoxious, is because in the story, Jesus wanted to, uh, the person who was hearing this to understand that he had multiple lifetimes worth of debt that he would never, ever, ever be able to repay. He was trying to grab a number that was large enough that the, per, the audience listening to his story would have been like, Ryan owed $10 billion. Like, I'm not going to be able to repay that, right? So this number is supposed to be striking to their ears so that they get it like a punchline of a joke. It's that thing that goes, okay, this is clearly, this is a, a point of emphasis that you want us to grasp. The debt that he owed was insurmountable. 
Um, it would have taken him multiple lifetimes to pay back that many talents, as they were called. The servant, of course, couldn't pay the king, so the king intended to sell off everything that the servant owned and to sell his fa family into servitude. And the servant pleaded with the king for patience. I will pay this back. So he pleaded for patience. I will pay this back. There is no way he could have paid this back. But in his kindness, the king listened to his request and didn't only withhold that payment, he actually canceled the debt altogether. We see in verse 27. Soon afterward, the servant encountered a fellow servant. Walking out of that circumstance, that servant came face to face with someone else who owed him 100 silver coins, which would have been the equivalent to about 100 days worth of labor. So this is a reality. This servant could have paid this debt back. So he had a debt that he could have never paid back. And then he runs into someone who owed him a debt that he could have paid back if he would have allowed him just a little bit of more time, if he'd have given him that space to be able to do that. So that smaller amount was requested, but he grabbed him, he began to choke him, and he commanded him to pay back what you owe me in verse 28. And even though that servant begged him for mercy, could have, even though he had just been forgiven thousands and thousands of bags of gold worth, he threw him into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the word got back to the king for his actions, he angrily reminded him that he should have had mercy on his fellow servant just as I had had mercy on you. So consequently, he handed the servant over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. And then Jesus concludes with this statement, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Okay, so that's fairly challenging words that Jesus has said. And I wanna dive in to that reality. So this is clearly a teaching on purgatory. <laughs> All right, sorry. So, I, I want to make a couple things clear because we've talked about this a lot, but when we read the parables, it's easy for us to hear like, oh, and there was a king and we go, oh, king, that must be God, right? And we're all like, oh, we're trying, now we're trying to fit God into this king in this story. But I want us to be careful that we don't do that and that we keep the main thing in a parable that Jesus is trying to show us the main thing so that we do not take a story that Jesus is saying and then imprint that story onto the character, the nature of God and allow that to create our doctrine on who God is and what God is like because Jesus spent his life teaching nonviolence, loving your enemies, turning the other cheek, laying down his life when he didn't have to. He demonstrated the love of the Father that was selfless, not that was punitive and punishing in that sense. And so if Jesus is sharing a story that seems to contradict the entirety of his demonstration of who God is, his reality of who God is, and his teaching about who God is, then we do not have to feel the pressure to imprint God onto this person, this character within that story, just because it's the king or the Lord in that circumstance. In fact, as we look at the king or the Lord, we would understand that those who are hearing that are in and living under a system where someone would have hold, held them in debt. And so it's like, this is actually a negative, in a sense, a negative character that the hearer would have associated with because they experienced that reality of being in debt, servitude. They experienced that from their oppressors every day. 
And so when we're reading parables, there is an is and an is not quality to these parables that we have to be able to discern to make sure that we keep the main point of the parable the main point. For example, we're going to look at Luke 18 in a few weeks, the, the parable of the persistent widow um, uh, and the unjust judge. When we look at that story of the persistent widow who Jesus is sharing, this persistent widow kept going to this unjust judge until she got recompense, until she was heard. We are making sure that this parable, we understand that this parable is about our necessity to continually pray, not that God is like the unjust judge in the character. We all get that, right? So the point is the unjust or is the persistent widow, not God being like the unjust judge. The point of this parable isn't that God is that sir is that king that is forgiving and then unforgiving, but that we would be people who forgive as we have been forgiven. And we, if we miss that main point, we can start to stretch the story further than it is really intended to go. So the central point of this parable is to teach us the urgency of forgiving others in light of how much that we have been forgiven and that refusing to do so puts our heart in a place where we are under, back under those things which we have been forgiven and released from. Our freedom is inhibited by our inability to stand in the forgiveness that God has for us. And we can come back under judgment of those consequences and those things. Parable, not about future destination, parable about the kingdom come and the kingdom present now. So as he's teaching them, he's teaching them about how to walk in a present kingdom, not how to get into an eternal destination. So he's teaching them that if you do not forgive, I'm, I'm going to preach this again in just a second, so bear with me as I go into my message before I get to my message. He's teaching them that if I choose to live with an unforgiving heart, I am pulling myself out of that forgiveness that I have received in this life, and I am going to have consequences for that unforgiveness in my heart, in my life, in my spiritual journey. And so Jesus is teaching them that. So Jesus says to those who are listening, you should forgive to the measure that you have been forgiven. And the audience is like, hmm, that's, that's, that's cool, I guess. I don't know. Because why? They don't yet have a concept and an understanding of what Jesus is, the magnitude of forgiveness that Jesus has come to demonstrate and unleash through his death and resurrection. So he's like, you got to forgive to the major you've been forgiven. And they're like, yeah, that's challenging. Okay, I can do that. If somebody forgives me, I'll forgive, I'll forgive them. The disciples as well are kind of going, huh. Okay, Peter asked this question, how often should I forgive? Seven times? He goes, 70 times seven. In fact, you should forgive to this measure. You have been forgiven much, you must forgive others. And so the disciples are going, yeah, cool, okay, great, we can do that. But you and I, getting to look at this through the lens of the completed work of Jesus, have a completely different appreciation for this parable and what is being said by Jesus to them that they aren't quite yet seeing but is also being said in a way that we get to see it and understand it. And what he is fully asking is heart-shaking. It is life-changing. When we look at this parable through the lens of the completed work of Jesus, it goes from them being experiencing it as a challenging story to us being 
having a choice to surrender our hearts and lives to an entirely different way of being. The kingdom reality that's on display is this. If you don't forgive as you have been forgiven, you won't be forgiven and you will be pulled back under the weight of what you were released from. Now, if you have sat in church in America long enough, what I just said to you scares you because you're like, he just told me I'm going to hell. (laughs) Did anybody hear it that way? I mean, don't raise your hand. But that's what we hear, okay? We, we are so inclined to launch every teaching of Jesus into, a, into this into heaven, not into heaven reality. I keep saying to us, the parables and the demonstration of Jesus' life and what was being modeled and what was being shown to us was how we are to access the, the freedom and the victory of the complete work of Jesus in our lives, in their lives, right then and right there. So if I, we'll get there. I keep wanting to preach the, the thing. Okay, so... If you don't forgive as you've been forgiven, you won't be living under the forgiveness that sets you free and brings you into wholeness in Christ here and now on this side of eternity. If I say that another way, I would go to Matthew 7. Matthew 7 is another similar teaching where Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged, and the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eyes and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? In light of the completed work of Jesus, when we are unmerciful to others, it hardens our hearts to the conviction and to the repentance that must take place for us to access and live in the forgiveness that Jesus has released. Get this with me. The forgiveness of Jesus has been released. When he is on the cross and he says, it is finished. When he is, when he is raised from the dead, when he is seated on the throne, when he is outpouring his spirit, the work of Jesus is finished and forgiveness is released to every single person There is no doubt of this. There is no shifting this. There is no getting away from this. But as I want to talk with you about this morning is that there is a difference in my life between receiving and knowing that something has been released. I know that Jesus has forgiven me, but have I received it to the core of my heart and life and mind? And if I have received it to the core of my heart and life and mind, I am now living in that forgiveness and I can give freely what I have received freely, right? If I create blockage, judgment, Lack of conviction, lack of repentance, pride and arrogance. Even though Jesus has forgiven me and has poured out his forgiveness upon me, I will not open up my heart to that waterfall of forgiveness to receive it and to carry it and to give it away. So is his forgiveness in doubt? Absolutely not. Is the posture of my heart and mind and life to receive that forgiveness in doubt? Absolutely 
Because how we posture our lives before the Lord matters. Not that he is yo-yoing his forgiveness. One day you're good, you get it. Oh, you said the bad word, didn't you? Taking it back. Oh, oh man, Lord, bring it back down. It is always being poured out. It is the condition of a heart that really demonstrates and allows us to receive it in a way that it becomes a tangible, powerful, spiritual reality that changes us and brings us into the fullness of who we are in Christ. So the point of all of that, as I'm saying, is there, a different, there is a difference between being forgiven and receiving that forgiveness. Matthew 6 for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sin. Man, that sounds so harsh. But remember how he taught us to pray. Jesus said, this is how you should pray. Forgive us our sins as we are forgiving others. And so there is this real-time, alive dynamic to being able to function in the receiving of forgiveness based on my ability to give out forgiveness. And the, and the more that I am receiving grace and mercy and actually taking it into my heart and my core of who I am, the more that I am giving it away. But as soon as I begin to, to pull that back and say, you don't get this, but I want this, then the condition of my heart is capping my ability to receive that free grace and mercy that cannot be earned. I'm telling people they have to earn it from me while asking God to pour it into my life for free. And there is a heart dynamic that is withholding, not a father that is withholding. So what hinders our ability to receive the forgiveness of Jesus that has already broken into the universe through his death and resurrection. What hinders our ability to receive the forgiveness of Jesus that has already broken into the universe through Jesus's death and resurrection? I wanna talk with you just practically about a couple things that the Lord put on my heart that matter to our heart posture and our ability to fully receive and access his grace and mercy and his forgiveness so that we do not find ourselves in that place where having received much, we are going out and holding other people on account and not giving away what has been given to us. So what hinders our ability? The first thing I would say that hinders our ability to receive forgiveness is lack of thankfulness. It says, and I don't wanna to read too much into this, but I was struck by the fact that as Jesus tells this story, it was literally your debt has been your, your multiple lifetimes of debt that you could never repay. All you're asking me for is a, is a delay on payment, but I am forgiving the payment. And, and the, Jesus tells the story in a way where sequentially that person walks out of that room, the way that Jesus tells it, and immediately encounters another servant and goes after them for a tiny debt. This demonstrates to me as I was praying through this and just asking the Lord, what's going on here? A lack of thankfulness and joy and wonder at what had just taken place. When we carry a deep sense of what Jesus has done for us, what Jesus has given to us, what his life laid down means, what his resurrection means, what his spirit poured out means, what his grace and mercy and presence given to us freely, when we have a deep sense of awe and wonder at what that means, our perspective changes and joy displaces 
insecurity where we would think every situation, I've got to see justice done and I got to be worried about this person and what they're saying and what they're doing and how I'm coming off to them and what they did to me and this and blah, 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 blah. And I, and I can capture all of those things and I can carry them or I have joy and thankfulness at what Jesus has done that allows me to not make every situation into something that I cannot be gracious towards that person. When I have joy and thankfulness, it displaces my need for justice in every moment. And you guys, I know, I, whenever we talk about this, whenever we talk about unforgiveness, when we, or when we talk about forgiveness, we talk about releasing people from their things, these are, these are deep and heavy topics. I know that. And so if you're having a hard time taking this teaching because you're trying to directly apply it to deep and heavy, heavy things, I would just ask for you to hit the button on that elevator and, and just come back out, but come back up to this more simple story that Jesus is telling. Yes, it does absolutely apply to those deeper things, and I am not minimizing those, and I'm not telling you just to ignore them. But I'm saying if we can capture this from the way that Jesus told the story, this person came and said, forgive me. And that person was unable to forgive. Why? Because he didn't carry joy and thankfulness at the fullness of what Jesus, or what the king, I just, see, I just did, I just turned the king into Jesus. He didn't have joy and thankfulness at what the king had done. And it's the same for us. So I know these things, these topics and these things that we talk about are very intense and it brings up a lot of questions of how do I do this and why do I do this? And I, and I, and I, and I feel like I have to say this every time because I care so deeply about this. Like forgiving someone doesn't mean that you are giving them access to your life and heart and family. It's forgiving someone doesn't mean that it's your responsibility to reset the standard. Forgiving somebody doesn't mean it's your responsibility to reestablish connection with them, especially if they are not a safe person. You do not not get to say, oh, Jesus told me to forgive you. Therefore, I have to try to, I have to open up and access my heart to you again, or I have to pull you into this relationship and be, that is none of those things. You are, we, 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 let's not hustle to the external reality of maybe a deep internal work that Jesus wants to do in your heart that could take years of just operating in forgiveness for these deeper realities, these things that have happened. Okay, that's the reality. But if I push the button on the elevator and I come up a few steps or a few floors, I'm also talking to us just about the way that we interact within our marriages, the way that we interact within our culture, the way that we interact with our schoolmates, the way that we interact with our coworkers as well. And so it is both and. Are you guys with me on that? You understand where I'm coming from. So a lack of thankfulness is one of the things that inhibits our ability to receive what Jesus has released through the cross, resurrection, his enthronement and outpouring. Another thing that inhibits our ability to receive forgiveness, understanding that there's a difference between being forgiven and receiving forgiveness. You are forgiven in Jesus. Tangibly and practically, how are you receiving that forgiveness and walking it out on a daily basis? Lack of thankfulness and judgments is another one. So this servant was more concerned with what others owed him than what he was forgiven and what he, or even what he owed others. So the judgments that we have in our life can actually cap our heart's ability to receive the forgiveness that God has for us. When I am unforgiving, when I hold a judgment over someone, 
it actually places that judgment over my heart, over my mind, and over my life. And it becomes a place where I will not seek the Lord, I will not seek forgiveness, and I will not come to him in humility. Those are things that posture our hearts to be able to receive the forgiveness that Jesus has poured out on the cross. And so judgments fight against the humility and the posture of our heart to be repentant and to stand in that forgiveness. What I hold over others, I come under. If I won't forgive, then guess what? There's gonna be places in my life where I cannot access the forgiveness of Jesus because I've made it, I've made this hard place in my heart something that I'm not willing to look at and in my pride, it will actually become a place where I will not ask Jesus for forgiveness or to show up. And that inhibits my ability to be a person who's receiving grace and mercy. A really simple example of this and I'll, and I'll give you one of mine because this is one of my biggest ones. And I've got a lot, judgments. Like once you start, I mean, ask Holy Spirit, you wanna have some fun? You wanna have some fun for the rest of this month? Just ask. Start praying every day, Holy Spirit, would you show me places where I jump to judgment instead of to grace? Would you show me places where I'm holding judgments over people and that's inhibiting my ability to be soft and pliable before you? So one of my huge ones is that I judge people who have needs. And so I'm like, man, they're always needing this. They're always needing that. Why? Because my pride tells me that I need to have it all together all the time and that I don't need anyone and that need is weakness. Wherever I learned this, we, we're not gonna do the whole counseling session this morning, unfortunately. <laughs> But where I learned this and then where, I got, where it became a part of my identity is that Ryan can take care of things and Ryan will keep things going and keep things moving and, and, and doesn't have needs. Why? Because I'm living out of a judgment that is like, ah, that person has a need and why are they so needy? And then why are they always asking for help? Meanwhile, this extremely healthy person over here is self-aware to be like, I have a need. I'm going to ask for help because they're healthy and mature. I'm over here doing everything because I'm healthy and mature, but I'm actually operating out of immaturity, judging the person who is able to articulate their need, going, oh, their need. So therefore, when I have a need, it's almost impossible for me to get those words to come out of my mouth to say, I need help. That's what happens when you let a judgment go out of your heart onto someone else. You immediately live under it. Why are you quote unquote triggered all the time? Why are you not seeing the spiritual growth that you want? Why are you not having the relationships that you want? I would say to you, let's hang out for a day and I'll just point out every time you do something that's done out of judgment instead of maturity. <laughs> and I'll do it too. We'll do it together. I mean, it's just one of my, it's fun. When somebody moves and they text and they're like, I need help moving. I'm like, what is wrong with this person? How dare they, right? So then when I'm moving, I'm doing it all alone. 
Because God forbid I break that judgment that I'm living under that I don't need help. How dare they ask for help, right? This is a little tiny example, but it is in your marriage. It is in your family dynamic. It is in your workplace. It is in your school, in your friendships. It is there in so many ways. Like you think you're living in freedom and all you're really doing is sidestepping all these judgments that you've put out there that are places you can't go. And because you won't go to those places you don't have a soft heart for them. And because you don't have a soft heart for them, you won't repent of them. And because you won't repent of them, you're not experiencing the power of forgiveness from the Father in those places, which is not just a mark on a ledger that says you're clear. It is actually a powerful spiritual reality when he unleashes forgiveness and pours it out upon you. Go and sin no more is not a religious behavior mechanism to say stop doing that thing. It is an actual promise from the, of the kingdom that says when you receive grace and mercy, you are now empowered to do the very thing that you couldn't a moment ago. Go and sin no more. So let's not make forgiveness into a check mark again, that gets us into heaven as much as it is a spiritual power that God exists within or maybe it exists within God to make sure that we get the rank correct and that he pours it out and it becomes the source of our health and our restoration. Does that make sense? Judgments. Do it. It's, it's a blast. Where's, where's Kim? Is Kim in here? She's gone. All right, she, she was like, I'm out of here for this part. <laughs> Nothing, I'm just, I was just. I was just gonna say the number of times we're having conversations and we're like, that's not a, that's not a problem with that person. That's a judgment in you. And it's not just me talking to Kim. I'm saying this is something that I was, it's, it's all of us doing the thing that I said you should do. Spend a few weeks and just say, God, show me your judgments because you're gonna find out I'm so mad at this person, I'm so annoyed at this person, I'm so frustrated at this person, they let me down. But when you can reflect that back to somebody that you trust, they're gonna say, you know what? I think it might be a judgment more than it is anything else. And then you have to deal with what judgments have I made about that person against that person that's keeping me from seeing them as, father, as the Father sees them. And instead I'm seeing them through my judgments towards them of them, them not measuring up to me. So anyway, we have a lot of fun conversations like that <laughs> around here. So, I don't know where I was. Sorry, Kim. I was just kidding. Just, just wanted to make you stay in here for my preaching. <sighs> it is a judgment that goes out, it lands on me. If a judgment goes out from me, it lands on me and it inhibits my ability to live in freedom and honor my own needs. This is how we come under the judgments we make towards others. We must root them out if we're to walk in spiritual health and maturity and forgiveness or we will be like the servant who judges those for that which he had just been forgiven. So, and then the other thing I think that inhibits our ability to live in forgiveness is just this, the lack of conviction that leads to repentance. Lack of conviction that leads to repentance. We've gotten really good at saying, I'm sorry. Like when we fail people, when we come up short, we're really good at saying, I'm sorry. Why? Because I'm sorry kind of resets the standard. It resets the clock or whatever it is. It's been this many days since there was an injury at work. Like, oh, yay, okay, I'm sorry. And it sets it back and we get going again and then we screw up and then we go, I'm sorry. 
So what happens is that I'm sorry becomes just this sort of um, this reset button in, in our relationships. But to me, that's not conviction and repentance. And so conviction and repentance is that I've sat with what happened and I can come to you and I can say, here is, I am sorry that I did this. This is why I did this. This is what the Lord is showing me. And this is how I am going after this thing in my life that caused me to act out that way. I'm sorry I lost my temper is wholly ineffective at restoring relationship. I'm sorry I lost my temper. Let me tell you guys a story. I'll tell, again, I'll tell it on me. This is my story. I, uh, we went on that trip to, to Idaho and, um, and it was like day three. And, um, and I lost my uh, mind on, <laughs> on my oldest son, Kellen. And, um, and I don't know if anybody externally would have really seen it that way, but I know how, how upset I was and how I lost my temper. I was not reflecting what I wanted to reflect to him or to my family in that moment. And, uh, and what happened was something fairly simple. It happens all the time. My 16-year-old son, he's awesome. He's back there. He's sitting in a row. My younger son, who's 11 years old, is excited to get out of the back of the Yukon. He jumps across the seat. He lands on his brother. His brother gets annoyed. And, uh, and it's fine. It's totally fine. And he drops an atomic elbow into his little brother's ribs while he's kind of splayed out like this. And, whoa, okay, everybody, everybody take it easy. This is not a story about Kellen doing something wrong, okay? You, you t if you turn it into that, then we'll have issues. But he, he, he hit him, he hurt him, and Ezra's crying. And at that moment, it makes me so aggravated that I am like, I can't get out of this seatbelt. I can't get turned around. If I could reach you, I would kill you right now. And I can barely reach him. And I'm like, you come here. And he's like, oh, dear goodness. You are so lucky we're in this car. And I laugh about it. But it's like, this is not a healthy response. It is a disproportionate. Everybody talks about triggers, triggers, triggers. All we're talking about is disproportionate responses. And disproportionate responses are when something external, something conscious happens to something in our subconscious that triggers it, hits it. And then we start, we instantly start living out of that reality as opposed to our present reality. And so when we do, so I could have just said to, to Kate and I mean to Kellen just saying, hey, I apologize. That is not who I am. That's not how I want to be. I'm sorry that that happened. But in deeper conversations with Kate, especially, I have to be able to show as a man that I am taking responsibility for understanding what took place beyond just, I'm sorry that that happened. There's no restoration if all I say to her is, I'm sorry, and to Kellen, hey, Kellen, I'm sorry. What they need from me is to be able to see that I sat with the spirit of the living God in a way that brought conviction to my heart, but also repentance, which is the changing of my mind after being with him or after seeing from his perspective or after experiencing his standard, my mind is transformed, which we are renewed by the transforming of our mind. So my mind is transformed through conviction, which leads me to repentance so that when I come out to, of that place to apologize, it's not just, I'm sorry, it's this. 
My brother was five years older than me, and I'm not blaming my brother. He's not here to defend himself. Not cool. So it's okay, everybody. It's okay. I love my brother, but being five years older than me, again, not blaming him, I grew up in a place of being picked on. And there was a few circumstances where I felt very undefended by my parents. My parents are also awesome. I'm not blaming my parents either. But there were places where I got hurt and I got bullied and I got you know, tricked into going into the basement and having the lights turned out on me and the doors closed all the way up until I just froze there in fear. These sorts of things. I, listen. When we seek the Lord, I, how much time do we have? When we seek the Lord for conviction and in repentance, we are not looking for an explanation that bypasses the sanctification that the Spirit wants to do. Don't go into your past to find an excuse. Go into your past to find the presence of God in that moment to heal you so that when you come out to share with people what has happened, you are not, you're not uh, like deflecting what happened. You're actually taking ownership for it. So while I'm telling you this story about my brother who was five years older than me, Kellen happens to be five years older than Ezra. I experienced these moments as a younger brother where I got hurt and it was overlooked or it was missed because he's a sneaky little jerk. And, <laughs> and so when an older brother hurts a younger brother, I am operating out of a place of hurt and pain and maybe some places where I need to release forgiveness so that I can continue to receive it in that place so that I have a deeper well to pull from that he experiences grace and mercy and forgiveness instead of wrath in that moment. But I was operating out of a hurt place, right? So I'm sorry doesn't do it justice. Husbands especially, you wanna reset your marriage, change the dynamic, Stop saying you're sorry for stuff. Go hang out with Jesus until conviction, literally conviction rests on you and you can repent. Your mind begins to change and you go, I see your way in this. And I see what's happening. So then when we are coming out to talk with those that we have hurt or if you've hurt somebody, you're able to explain to them in more detail than just, I'm sorry that happened. I'm sorry this happened. Here's what I was operating out of. This is what Holy Spirit is showing me in that place and here's how I'm going to work with him to make sure that this is not an ongoing reality. It, it drives me crazy to no end that our, our oldest children get uh, the worst parenting. Uh, right? Because we're like, just figuring it out as we go. I'm not gonna do that. Kellen, I'm sorry I did that to you. I'll never do that to your younger brother. And I'll never do that to his younger brother. And I'll never do that to him, right? And so just to be able to say there is grace and mercy and we have the worship, worship team, can you guys come back up? I think I just spent a little too much time rambling there. So lack of conviction that leads to repentance. I believe that the servant in the story, he wasn't convinced of his need. He actually thought that he could pay it back when in reality there was no way. When I am convinced of my sin, when I am convicted of my sin, I have sat with it. I understand it. Jesus has sat with me in it and he brings me to repentance. And I can articulate it more than just, I'm sorry. And as I said, we don't go into those places 
to come out with an excuse or a deflection. And I know if you're anything like me, I think we're all tired of people being like, I was just triggered. You know, like I was, it was my childhood trauma. I'm not, I'm sorry. I'm not minimizing childhood trauma at all. Okay. This is probably when I should quit. Okay. (laughs) We want to see, we want to be able to look into our childhood trauma so that we can be healed in those places. Not just so that we understand why we behave the way that we behave, right? Do you get what I'm saying? I'm not, I'm not minimizing childhood trauma at all. But we are not trying to create excuses. We're not trying to deflect and blame. So the question I hope that you're asking is like, well, then how do I know that I've received forgiveness? If previously my standard for receiving forgiveness was that I'm pretty sure I'm, I feel pretty good about getting into heaven, which, it, which can be a little bit hard to grasp onto that feeling of confidence, if we're all being honest, because we've made that a scoreboard for so long. So if that's, not the, if that's not the ultimate marker for it, then how do I know that I've received forgiveness? The reality is that receiving forgiveness is not determined or experienced because we've performed an act of repentant prayer. The mark of received forgiveness is, in fact, tangible and experiential in your life. It is not a ledger that is now equal. It is that you are experiencing the life of Jesus and the freedom of Jesus tangibly in areas of your life that previously were hindered, were locked up, were under bondage, were under addiction, were under shame, were under habit, whatever it was, you are experiencing, you're beginning to experience the freedom of Jesus in those places. In an area where I have received forgiveness, I will experience a marked decrease in guilt, in shame, in performance in that area of my life, as well as an increase of freedom in that area of my life. I am not saying I have experienced forgiveness because I think I'm going to heaven. I am saying I have experienced forgiveness because that forgiveness is a powerful reality that Jesus has released into my heart that is changing these areas of my life. It's changing my relationship with my kids. It's changing my relationship with my wife or my friends. And so this morning, I want, as a response time, I want us to worship of course, but I wanted to open the communion tables to us for these next 15 minutes. And I want us to check our hearts for areas where we are living in less than thankfulness. I want us to check our hearts for judgments that we have. I want to check our hearts for lack of conviction and repentance when we, when we, when we have messed up or missed that we just go like, I'm sorry, Jesus, and we move on. I'm sorry to the person I hurt, and we move on, as opposed to sitting in that place until our minds and hearts are transformed by his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness, that we can articulate why this happened, what happened, why it happened, and what Jesus is doing to transform us in that place. And so, as the communion tables are open, let let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would continue to pour yourself out upon this time and this gathering. As we come to worship and we come to the communion table, Root out the places in our hearts where we are not thankful. We have lost the awe and the wonder at the magnitude of your forgiveness that you have poured out upon us. That we would never turn around and demand from someone else a a fraction of what we have received, an incalculable amount that we have received from you, forgiveness. 
Let us be joyful. Let us be thankful. God, would you search our heart for judgments that we are making, God? Because when we push those out onto others, we immediately come under them ourselves. And no judgment, no judgment that we release doesn't land back upon us and cause us to have to live under it as well. And so we want to release and relinquish those to you today. And I ask, Lord, that we would be a people, not just in these next few minutes, but that we would be a people in these months and these years ahead, that we would be a people who are marked by the ability to operate in conviction and to be moved by repentance. And that we would go to those places where we need healing in our past, in our hurts, in our wounds, and we would experience the healing in those places so that that conviction and that repentance works its way out. Let our hearts be soft to you, that we would always be receiving your forgiveness, that we would then be able to give away what we have freely received to you and that no posture of our heart or life would inhibit what you released on the cross that day and that everything that you purchased by your blood would be given to you, would be received by you and be laid down at your feet. So we open these communion tables to you guys. Take a few minutes to take communion, bring it back to your seat and you can come and kneel. You can find spaces at your seat. You can do whatever you need to do just to pray and respond in these areas as the Lord leads you. Let us be people who are carrying and open to that forgiveness and that reality. Amen.